Let us turn our attention to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. hear God's word. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embraced him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a while, uh, a long while, even till daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man alive, in alive, and they were not a little comforted. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we are thankful for this uh, wonderful portrait of the early church. And again, we ask you, O God, that we might know what they knew and that we might be instructed by them as they lived under the direction of the apostles. We pray that we might be helped in that regard by the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see here the apostles' time in Ephesus uh, has ended. And uh, we move on. Uh, The basic division of the text uh, is uh, further journeys. That's what I entitled the sermon in verses 1 through 6. Briefly, I want to cover that. And then, really, I want to spend the majority of the sermon in Troas. His ministry in Troas is the second division in verses 7 through 12. But let me begin in verses 1 through 6 just to briefly recount uh, these further journeys. The scope of the narrative, beginning here in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, Uh, leading up to chapter 21, verse 17, is to get Paul to Jerusalem. And so really that whole unit could be taken as one, 20, verse 1 through 21, verse 17. In fact, uh, even though I'm not particularly given to this sort of comparison or to notice these kinds of things in in Acts as it's compared to uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, the commentators made so much of this, I I have to say something, uh, that uh, in this journey... It seems that Luke was deliberately pointing to similarities between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And so, uh, though, as I say, I don't want to make too much of that, nonetheless, at certain points we will notice unavoidable similarities. 
Presently, we find him journeying from Ephesus to Troas. This is the first of two stops in Troas, which is as far as we'll go this evening, his, uh, his second stop in Troas uh, in this journey. So he finishes his time in Ephesus, and we see what he does there. He calls them, and he embraces them, and says goodbye. Remember, he spent three long years of ministry, which... Uh, I, I, I believe, uh, in fact, I'm certain was the longest time at this point he had spent anywhere. And so what we notice is at the end of that three year time, uh, his his heart was bound to theirs. It really is fitting. Luke could have said the end of his time, he bid them farewell. He called them and he, he, he bid them adieu. But what he says is that he embraced them. And, and, and isn't that a fitting way of describing the apostle in his relation to these people. We often see this in his epistles, how much his heart was bound to those to whom he ministered. He, he loved them at times that they were sinning. His heart broke for them. This was truly a tender-hearted man. And so this is a touching picture to see him embracing those whom he loves. Soon we'll see him from Miletus addressing those Ephesian elders. And again, we get a picture of, uh, of how much... He loved them and how much he was willing to suffer if only they might be saved. Now, some have translated uh, the word encouraged rather than embraced, giving us a slightly different picture. Uh, So it, it could read that he called them, he encouraged them, and he said goodbye. That would give us a kind of farewell discourse similar to what we find in Miletus. Later on in chapter 20, I don't think that's right. Having looked at the Greek, I think embraced is a fairer picture or a fairer representation of that word. And I think it fairly summarizes as well the kind of man Paul was. In any case, next we find him in Macedonia where he expected to meet Timothy and Erastus. We know this from chapter 19, verse 22, where it reads, So he sent into Macedonia two uh, of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. No doubt, uh, while in Macedonia, he revisited the churches founded during the second missionary journey, namely Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. We read many words of encouragement were spoken. This time, uh, we can say that confidently. Again, emphasizing The ministry of the word in strengthening the churches. So even though Paul says that he planted and another man watered in the case of Corinth, nevertheless, I think we could say he did a little watering himself. Next, he comes to Greece, no doubt returning to Corinth, where he spent three months. And we know that since his last recorded visit in Corinth, he had written no less than four letters, two of which we possess in the New Testament, one of which we read from a little earlier on. We also know that in between those two recorded visits in Acts, uh, that there was a painful visit alluded to in 2 Corinthians. But we can only imagine what this visit was like in Corinth, having visited uh, them in that painful visit, having written those four letters, two of which we possess. You read those letters and you see Paul was addressing A church that was in peril, a church that was full of sin, a church that needed to be corrected thoroughly, and yet a church which we see he loved more than any other. And so as I think about that, 
I do find myself wishing, though I would never find fault with Scripture, but I find myself wishing that Luke had said a little more about his visit in Corinth. Only he doesn't. He had another interest, uh, and that is in getting Paul to Jerusalem. We also know that it was during this stay in Corinth uh, that he wrote his letter to the Romans, which, uh, in which we find him stating his purpose, purpose both to visit Rome and go on to Spain. When he says that at the end of Romans, he was saying that from Corinth, just as we read him here. Well, after he spent three months in Corinth, he first intends, we read, to sail to Syria. But upon learning of the plot of the Jews against him, he decides to return through Macedonia. Here we learn something of those who were with him, representative of, uh, representatives of the various churches, bringing with them their part of the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. So they travel, not Paul on his own, but this group of, of representatives, travel through Philippi once more and return to Troas. Uh, there, uh, there Luke chooses to give another one of his famous snapshots. Uh, and I should have said, I, I, I caught it just as soon as I said it. Actually, they went ahead of him to Troas and he caught up with them. And so they weren't actually traveling together. At any rate, we find... Paul traveling through Philippi and returning to Troas, and it is there that Luke gives his snapshot, uh, which he likes to do. He gives a general picture, and then he gives a particular picture. That tends to be his method. Well, the general picture is the journeys. Now the particular picture, even though we might have said, oh, Luke, why didn't you choose Corinth? He chooses Troas, and that's, that, that's what he wants to tell us. That's what God wants us to know. And perhaps you will see by the end of the sermon why God did. It's a very instructive, it's a very useful picture illustrating the life of the early church, the, the kind of life that we want to embody as, our, as well. I keep saying, I keep praying, oh Lord, we want to be like that. We want to be the kind of church that was found in the days of the apostles. Now I say that's instructive. Let me just elaborate on that a little bit. One of the questions I've been asking myself, I've been doing a bit of study on the history of the church lately. I'm doing some teaching in uh, Sunday school, a, a historical question I've been asking myself. Now, what about the earliest church? We talk about the early church, but what about the earliest church that she was under the direction of the apostles? I, I pull out my history books on the early church. And I don't know why this never occurred to me, but it's so obvious the record of the early church, the earliest church, is found in Acts. What do you think they're appealing to? Here I'm thinking there's all these other documents that they're looking at, and they can fill out the picture for me, so to speak. And yet, even in those history books, what they are appealing to is Acts. And so when we ask ourselves, what was the earliest church like? Well, we can do no better than the historians, and that is open the pages of the book of Acts, and there try to get a sense of what she was like. What was she like? Well, here, notice what was going on in Troas. All we have here is a picture of a Sunday evening service. That's it. And yet it's full of useful instruction. It is a snapshot into the worship and the life of the early church. The first thing that we need to know about the early church, we're talking about the church in her worship, 
The first thing we need to know is that it was a meeting of Christian disciples. That's the first thing. Uh, well, I suppose it's the second thing he says, but it's the first thing I want to emphasize. When the disciples came together, they gathered for a certain purpose on this Sunday, as was their custom. When the disciples came together to break bread, they did so on Sunday. All of these things I hope to say something about. But let us see first that the coming together of disciples is essential to the whole idea of the church. I was just rereading several things from our historic documents. Uh, The original Directory of Public Worship refers to uh, a congregation. Now, I think that's a very good way to describe a church. A church is a congregation. Or uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to the church as a spiritual society. The church is essentially a gathering of believers a gathering of Christian disciples. That is basic to the New Testament teaching or the New Testament conception of what the church is. Now, I want to stay with this point for a moment because um, we, we are going to take a detailed look at this when we look at the church as the body of Christ in Romans chapter 12. That becomes the main idea when we come to verse 3. Let me just read verses 4 and 5. Where the apostle says, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The church then, according to this definition, is a spiritual society who together compose the body of Christ. By the way, uh, just to give another example, when I look in our confessional statement on the church, uh, I I find uh, something very similar. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there's no ordinary possible Possibility of salvation. And just as an aside, with that definition, along with that definition, the next uh, chapter in the confession is the communion of the saints. And really, I think those two ideas have to go together. The church has to do with the communion of the saints. But when we speak of the church as the body of Christ, a congregation of believers who are individually members of one another, but together members of the body of Christ, we are saying that Christ is the head and we are the members of his body. That's what the church is. And and I would say that, that it is hugely important. But also, just as it is hugely important, it's also easily forgotten. And, and it's an idea that I hope to spend a great deal of uh, time on In the Roman sermons, what is the church fundamentally? What is she supposed to be? What what is she to do? Let me put it like this. The church is not a building. We're sometimes confused because we think of the building as the church. We say, I'm going to church. And we mean, I'm going to the building. I'll I'll even point to the building and say, well, that, that the church there. But the building is not the church. You can meet in 
the upstairs room of a house and still have a church. That's what we see here. You can meet in a field. And who is to say if one day we as a church, that is, as a gathering of people, will not be driven to the fields as our ancestors were. You had churches meeting outdoors, of course. If you understand what the church is, you see there's no contradiction. The building itself is not essential to the idea of the church. In light of that, I would be almost inclined to return to the use of the Puritan expression of referring to places of worship as meeting houses. Uh, I like that very much. We're going to the meeting house. What are we going to do? We're going to gather as the church in the meeting house. You, you notice in the definition of the church, there's no reference to a building. Not, uh, not in the Westminster Confession of Faith. What I'm saying is it's always wrong to make too much of the building itself. At many points in the history of the church, Christians have fallen into this error. But you don't find that Anywhere in the New Testament, what makes the church a church in the scriptural sense is this gathering of believers. When the disciples come together, that's it. Now, I would also be concerned to stress it is something more than a gathering of believers. I mean, you can have a gathering of believers and it not be the church necessarily or the church in a true sense. But let us also see it's never less than this. This is. This is at the foundational level essential to the idea of the church. But the next thing we need to ask ourselves is why have they gathered? And they gathered for two principal reasons. And this is equally essential to the idea of what the true church is. It's not just that she gathers again that's foundational. But why has she gathered? And Luke tells us, he says, they gathered to break bread. It's a similar picture uh, to what we have in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a more famous verse, though I would argue Acts chapter 20, verse 7 needs to be uh, atop the list as well. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This is why they came together. And as they came together in this way, so they constituted the church. And so here they gathered in order to share what scholars call a love feast. It was a meal they shared together. And we get the picture from 1 Corinthians that it was a large meal, very similar to what we do in what we call a fellowship meal. Only it was more than that, because along with the meal, they were also observing the Lord's Supper. They were doing both together. You could imagine, this is the picture in essence, you could imagine uh, in the fellowship meal, me standing there and reading the words of institution so that we understood in the breaking of bread at that table that we were actually observing the Lord's Supper. That's effectively what they were doing. We're about to eat a meal, but we're doing something more as well. And you can hear Paul saying that in First Corinthians chapter 11. Don't you realize this is more than a meal? Because they were treating it as just a meal. They were filling their bellies and indeed some uh, were not even able to eat by the time they got to the end of the line. It's, it's a sad picture. I would say, frankly, based on the abuses in Corinth, which by now had already been corrected because we know that Paul had already written 1 Corinthians, or at least we hope they had been corrected. He had intended for them to be corrected. Based upon that, I can say for my part, at least I'm thankful we divide the things, the meal and the sacrament. Though often on Sunday we have both, don't we? But what I want to stress about this is not the meal itself, though fellowship meals are, uh, they have biblical war, and I'm glad we do them here. 
But, but really the fact of their observing the sacrament. When Luke says they gathered to break bread, whether in Acts 2 or here in Acts 20, he's referring to their observance of the Lord's Supper, which the Lord Jesus had intended for them to do. They gathered not to eat food, not to fill their bellies, as Calvin said. I read that this morning, but to nourish their souls. They gathered to observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. When you come together, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. And so they did. And so believers have done ever since. When they gather together, they observe the Lord's Supper. And in so doing, to find spiritual nourishment. What I would like to argue based upon this snapshot or portrait of the early church is that an important precedent was sent, set in the early church. That a key reason that believers gather is in order to observe the Lord's Supper. When we, when, when, when we come together, when they came together, it was in order to break bread. So likewise, when we come together, it is in order to break, to, to break bread. I grant, I find in Corinth, I find in, uh, the, in the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation, I even find in the Reformation that uh, it's risky. The Lord's Supper is something that is always open to abuse. Even in the early church, they were abusing it, and yet I would say it's worth taking the risk. Because the Lord commanded us to do it. Because it's the reason that we gather together. You see... One of the changes that we made recently was to weekly communion. And more and more as I read the scriptures, I I see that this is in keeping with the practice of the early church. You ask yourself, why was it that Jesus told us to observe this? You see, it's enough to say we observe it because he told us to. But let's go a step further and ask, why did he tell us to observe the Lord's Supper? In other words, you're asking the question, when we come together to break bread, why are we doing it? And the answer is because, and I hope to say more about this in a little bit, but the answer is because he promises to meet with his people. And, 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 and really that, to go a little further along with the idea, that's truly the essential idea of the church. It's not just that Christians are gathering in the name of the Lord, but that the Lord has promised to be present in the midst of the gathering. And so as they are gathered together, as our directory of worship so beautifully says, It is not just a gathering of believers, but it is a gathering of God in the midst of his people. And you have to realize that's what is so wonderful about the Lord's Supper, but that's also what's so risky. Because God is not mocked. You know, I want to read from the director of worship. I just have so much to say. I think I'm going to leave the point. I'm going to leave the point there. Yes, it's open to abuse, but it's worth the risk. Weekly communion is fully justified as the practice of the early church. How can any justify the irregular use of the table when those in Troas came together to break bread? But next to the sacrament and along with it was the word. And so we find in Troas uh, what we also find throughout uh, the history of the church in her better days, word and sacrament together. That was the battle cry of the Reformation, word and sacrament, the preaching and the sacraments. And that battle cry goes all the way back to the early church. And isn't it also clear that the order, though sacraments are mentioned first, that the word, the preaching 
got uh, the priority in Troas. It came first and occupied the prominent place in their gathering. Uh, the, re- the real thing that Luke is stressing here is what happened when Paul preached. And it's a very interesting and dramatic scene. Imagine the scene here. Here Paul uh, has come together with these believers on this Sunday. They gather together for worship and he says, I'm going to preach to you. He knows he's going to depart the next day. He doesn't have very long. You know, he liked to spend a long time because he had so much to say. But here he's in a hurry. Oh, there's so much to say. And so he continued his message, it seems, for hours, well into the night. I think of sometimes uh, when the men gather uh, around the fire at someone's house after, uh, after an evening service. And it's, it, 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 no one wants to leave. We just want to continue together as long as we possibly can. That's the picture here. Only we see not everyone was up for the task. He was preaching a very long sermon. He spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Just imagine that. We don't know when they started, but this was a very long time. So I say not everyone was up to the task. We find him preaching so long that a man fell asleep and he was sitting in the window He was sitting there because these lamps were burning and he needed a bit of fresh air and he becomes drowsy and he falls out of the window and he dies. It's a dramatic scene. This 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 occurred in the context of worship, the worship of the early church. A man died. Should we say because Paul preached so long or should we say because he couldn't stay awake? Well, I I would agree with the commentators when they say. Luke doesn't assign blame. He doesn't say, you know, Paul was so long winded. He killed a man. (laughs) Nor does he say, you know, that man should have, he, he should have been more spiritual. He should have stayed with him. You see, it's easy to assign fault in these cases. I would say if you can't stay with me for 40 minutes, I, I, I suppose I could blame you in that case. So I will grant if ever I should go on until midnight that I will assume the blame for your drowsiness. Well, as I say, Luke is not interested in assigning blame to either. At any rate, we see that Paul interrupts his very long message to go down and to save this brother who had died. But do you do you notice? And I must confess, I love this. After restoring the man to life, he resumes the service. I think that's the best part. They break bread. By that, I take them to mean they finally uh, they finally get to the, the communion portion of the service, and then they continue to talk for a long while. It isn't clear. Perhaps the service had ended, but they still were fellowshipping on, as we would do on the, on the church lawn, or perhaps that, that even was part of the worship service. Only at daybreak does Paul at last depart. And so, in this twofold way, let us realize, word and sacrament, we not only remember the gospel, At the table, we remember the gospel. Do this in remembrance of me. In the preaching, we remember the gospel. But let me go further. And this is essential to the idea of Christian worship and of the church herself. We participate in it. We experience and receive the blessings of the gospel. Jesus not only says, remember, I've forgiven you. No, he forgives you. You are experiencing in the preaching and in the sacraments, the blessings of the new covenant. These are called The ordinances of the new covenant. Why did Christ set them up? Because by them he intended to bless you. 
By them he intended for you to have a transaction with him. This is a meeting, let me say again, between Christ and his people. And through the sacraments and through the preaching, he is bestowing grace upon his people. I I want to read this again because I just found this so helpful from John Owen. Believers delight in duties of evangelical worship because in it they meet with God as revealed in Christ. In worship, they seek a personal experience of fellowship with God in Christ. All the ordinances and duties of divine worship have been appointed by God as the means by which fellowship between himself as revealed in Christ and our souls may be maintained. By them, Christ communicates his love and grace to us and in them and by them, we renew our faith in him and pour out our love to him. In every act of divine worship, the believer is saying to Christ, I trust you and I love you. That's what they were doing. And that's what I would contend we are doing when we gather together for worship. The Apostle Paul needed the early church to understand this. I read it this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Don't you realize when you come together to break bread and to drink the wine, you are communing with Jesus Christ. And he would equally say in Romans or also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And chapter one, don't you realize that when the word of God is being preached, you are not only hearing the words of man, but you are hearing the very promises of God that nourish your soul. And in this way, God is building you up in your faith. Yes, I understand in both cases. I often put it this way. The preaching and the sacraments are an amazing and even a contemptible display of weakness. I grant that. Even as Christ crucified on the cross was an amazing and contemptible display of weakness. But don't you realize, as Paul says, the weakness uh, of God is greater than the power of men. And have you begun to discover that for yourself? Well, I have so much to say, but I've got to keep going. Let me say something else about this. And here's a point I've been thinking a lot about. And it really stands out to me here. Although I confess, as I've confessed before in other points, it's a point that isn't quite as easy to make. But something that stands out about this is that there was a degree of informality. It was not a particularly formal service, was it? Now, I think that people go far, far too far with this idea and they, they begin to advocate for house church movements. And I would condemn that and I intend to condemn that in a moment. Because there was still something formal about this. I'm saying that fundamentally it was an informal gathering. And yet, let us also see there was an inspired apostle preaching to them. And they were observing the Lord's Supper. And if you've ever read the writings of Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians again, just as an example, it's very clear that he treated these things with the utmost seriousness. And so there was an element of solemnity and formality that no doubt was present And yet, let me say again, essentially, this was an informal gathering. There was something, if I could try to compare this, and I've been trying to compare it to this already, to something present, uh, the present practice of this church. There was something uh, of of a mixture of a worship service and a fellowship meal. Very similar to that uh, at at this, this gathering. But the point is that the kind of worship you find in the early church recorded in Acts was was of a very low church kind. 
People sometimes argue against this, but I don't see how. You find nothing that even remotely resembles the high church instincts that emerged in later centuries. I find very little difficulty arguing that this represented in later centuries a departure from the instincts for simplicity in worship that was cultivated in the early church. And so the way that I would try to put this point is that any reader of the New Testament Uh, the New Testament must have by now cultivated a certain inclination in the low church direction. You can't cultivate high church sensibilities from the New Testament. It's impossible. Perhaps from a reading of church history, I grant you might, but never this history in the New Testament. The whole document mitigates against it. Simplicity in worship is always what you find. You know, I remember once reading that uh, Spurgeon and we all love Spurgeon. He says, I try never to do anything uh, that, that uh, smacks of formality. And that's what I'm trying to express here as well. Nor anything of the, of the kind of ceremonialism and official, official pomp that you find in the high church today. This was, let me say again, an informal, simple gathering of Christian disciples. And yet... Arguing against the excesses of the high church, I would also argue against the excesses of the house church movement with equal vigor that bases uh, their ideas on a text like this. For while their instincts are right, I grant their execution of the idea falls short of the New Testament ideal. For the simple reason in the house church movement, there is no official ministry. No one ordained to preach the word or administer the sacraments. There's no elders or deacons. And so while they avoid one extreme, they fall into the other. And isn't that how it often goes? And so as ever, I would contend that the true balance of scripture is found today more or less in Presbyterian worship. I'm sure you've heard me say that for years, but still I'm saying it. Of course, if it can be shown that our practice falls short of this ideal in this or any church, we must always be prepared to alter our practice, always. But insofar as we are doing what these first Christians were under the direction and the leadership of the apostles, let us continue with a clear conscience, worshiping God according to the New Testament model. But the last thing that I would notice, and I'm sure you've been waiting to see if I would mention this, and I would mention it now, is the last point, and that is, That they met on the first day of the week. That is on Sunday. This is actually the first reference we have in Acts. But there is no question that it had become the established practice of the early church to meet on Sundays for worship. As it has been ever since. Although ironically I would note that we are currently in the building that a Seventh-day Adventist church used to worship in. So I suppose I could say some Christians if... They are Christians. I confess I don't know. I don't know anything about Seventh-day Adventism. But let's suppose they are. Nevertheless, they don't acknowledge that. So we could say the vast majority of Christians. Well, here the precedent was set. Or, Or I should say it had been set already and it was being observed. It wasn't set here, even though it was the first reference. It was actually set. And uh, any of you have read the little paper that I put on the book table downstairs, I Love the Lord's Day by Robert Murray McShane. He does a wonderful job of articulating that the precedent was set, not uh, in Acts, but in the Gospels. When the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples that first Sunday. And as he appealed, uh, appeared to his disciples that first Sunday, and by the way, John and the other evangelists go out of their way to, to point out this happened on the first day of the week. 
When Jesus Christ appeared in the midst of his disciples as the resurrected Lord, we had there the first worship service of the early church. And it was based upon that that the precedent was set. John even goes on to say in verses 19 and following of chapter 20 uh, that Jesus appeared to them again eight days later. And according to the Jewish rendering, eight days later would have meant on the next Sunday. So he appeared to them on Sunday and they held the first Christian worship service. And then he appeared to them on the next Sunday and they did it again. And, you, and do you know they've been doing it ever since? Do you understand why the apostles, whether what we find being said in Acts or in 1 Corinthians, uh, almost mention it as an afterthought? Well, of course they were worshiping on Sundays, yes, because they had been doing so under the direction of their Lord from the very beginning. And there's no question that this then became the settled practice of the Christian church under the authority of the uh, authority and direction of the risen Lord himself and then the apostles after him. Now, whether you call Sunday the Christian Sabbath, as I do, whether you go uh, that far or not, there is no question that Sunday is the day in which Christians gather to worship the risen Lord in the New Testament. And, and I'll say again, as they worshiped him, so they communed with him. What we find then, these Christians doing in Troas, just as we were, just as we are doing here then, is something that fits in very nicely with the overall picture in Acts. It seems they were always doing something like this. Christians gathering on Sunday. You know, sometimes they meant more than that. We read that at times. But at the very least, they were gathering on Sunday for word and sacrament ministry. We also know that isn't the full picture. That's the primary thing. But we also know from other portions in Acts that there was a ministry of prayer and of singing. There was an emphasis on Christian fellowship. There was also an emphasis on almsgiving. They collected uh, offerings and gifts for the poor. Sometimes in other churches, such as in Jerusalem. Now, the fact that they met on the evening, you might imagine that there's something there to that. And though I wish there were, there really isn't. That was just the most convenient time to do so. Scripture doesn't lay down any particular time in which we worship God on Sundays. It, it doesn't even prescribe evening worship, uh, though I think uh, it is wise to do so. They worship there in the evening. It seems as their main worship service because in, in, in their case, it was, again, the most convenient time to do so. But the real principle here is just that we prioritize Sunday, even as Christians always have, to be a day of gladness, a day of gathering, a day of worship. Didn't we sing that already today? In fact, I think we might have sung it twice. And so what I'm really stressing and what I've been stressing throughout Acts and what I think this is impressing most upon me, all of these sermons from Acts, and I hope to impress upon you as I preach, is we want to be the kind of church that looks like this. We want our practice to conform to the pattern of the New Testament. Recently, I was reading someone say something like this. Let us go back to the New Testament. Let us always examine what we are doing in light of that. That's what I'm saying. That's why Acts always has something to say to us, because we can always ask ourselves, do we know what they knew? And are we doing what they did? And so I'm saying that's what we ought to do. As we go through Acts, we're asking that question Always. Let me say this. If Christians today have totally forgotten about Sunday, that's not my concern. 
You know, there are Christians who say, well, we'll meet on Saturday night. That's easier for people. They're busy on Sundays. Let's meet on Saturday night. The Sabbath has been forgotten in this country or Sunday, more or less. Well, my concern is not what men are saying today. My concern is with the New Testament. And my concern as a Christian, just as it ought to be your concern, is to make my practice to conform to that. To conform to its teaching. Is that what we're doing? You see, that's the question we ought to always be asking ourselves. And do we find, let me also say something about this as I close. Do we find that when we are finished with a worship service that we're not a little comforted? You see, he says that. And they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted. I grant they were not a little comforted because they had seen this tremendous miracle. But it occurred in the context of worship. And so I would also uh, plead that there is something to that as well. Here they had finished what was, I think, one of the best worship services the church had ever known. They even witnessed a resurrection. But more important even than that was they sat under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And when they had finished fellowshipping together, breaking bread together at the Lord's Supper, communing with one another and with the Lord Jesus, do you know they weren't a little comforted? Which is another way of saying they were greatly comforted. They were edified. They were built up. Certainly, that is always the goal. We don't come together, beloved, just to go through the motions. Let us shun that kind of formalism and ceremonialism. But let us come together as we break bread and sit under the teaching that we might together not be a little comforted as we gather in the presence of God. Amen. And let us return our praise to God as we close out our worship uh, by singing together hymn 445. And please stand. <laughs>